welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Lindsay. I'm Ron. I'm Jay. And we are here to talk about Garden State, starring Zach Braff, Peter Sarsgaard, and Natalie Portman. Directed and written by Zach Braff, it was released in 2004 on a $2.5 million budget, and it ended up grossing about $35.8 million worldwide at the box office. Jay, let's start with you. What's your history with this movie? Like I don't know, three days ago. <laughs> I I um I think I told you this offline, but I'll just admit it now. I know Zach Braff is famous for things. I've never seen him in anything until I watched this. Like purposely sat to watch him in something, and I think I've seen pieces of this here and there through the years. I know the soundtrack was something that I would have you know tapped into because i was still really into music in the early 2000s and stuff but i this one missed me i didn't really see this and i don't know him from anything um i just knew this movie had a good reputation and you know i haven't seen it i get why but yeah i, I don't have any history with this this was new for me so uh, again other than just the scant pieces of, of seeing it and i guess if i ever watched pieces of it before it was, it was strictly just based off of natalie portman and like oh i want to see natalie portman <laughs> recreate the greatest performance of her career that she did when she was 13 she's never done it <laughs> but uh, yeah, there we go what about you ron yeah, I've literally never seen this movie before. I was aware of it at the time because I think it was unavoidable. Um, but I don't know how I managed to make it this long into my life having never seen it. Well, happy to pop your Garden State cherries, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> this was... I I saw this movie when it came out. I was... I think a freshman in college maybe. And I didn't remember much about it. I watched it a lot in college, I feel like, but I didn't remember anything about it except that I liked it. And then rewatching it again last night for me, I was like, yeah, no, that tracks that. I see why I liked it so much when I liked it at that point in my life. So I think every generation has like, uh, there's so many seminal movies that kind of mark your adolescence and growing up and, you know, change a life and all that kind of stuff in your twenties. And like this one, I feel like missed me because I was on the kind of turning the corner into the mid twenties at this point and stuff like that. Mine would have been something like singles, you know, was sort of my 20 somethings movie um, from the grunge era and all that, that kind of stuff. So I think this one was just a few years beyond me, but I was still, you know, I was working at colleges and I was still relatively young. And I've always said like working at universities keeps you kind of young, at least in mind, because you have to keep up with what, what the youths are saying and all this kind of <laughs> stuff and keep up with the kids and all that. But I, I felt like this one was just a little behind me, but I get why this one had an impact on your generation and stuff was, cause this is very much like, Oh yeah, I remember 
people like this guy, you know, and, and uh, you know, younger friends and things like that through the years. So yeah, I get why this one was a hit and uh, why it really took off. And I didn't realize like, this is one of the early things that he did um, mm-hmm. too. And so um, usually comedians, and I think that's what like, scrubs is supposed, is supposed to be like a comedy ER. Right. So it, comedians that break out and do drama work early on, it's always like, Oh boy. Okay. We're trying to be serious. I don't know if we can do this, but I, I got to give him credit. I, I was impressed with like how much poignancy he was able to weave into this yeah i mean scrubs is scrubs is good because it has like that comedy and drama intermingled with each other um but this was the first the first thing that zach braff ever wrote and also directed i think i don't think he had done either of those things before this movie Yeah, Scrubs was definitely one of those sh- uh, shows that was going for the mash thing of let's all be funny, haha, until it's time for everyone to be sad. Mm-hmm. And and that 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 kind of carry that seems to carry over uh, pretty strongly into this movie. I feel like. Well, this movie was also kind of a a biopic for Zach Braff. Like I think he's on record saying at least 75% of this movie happened to him. So it's kind of his, you know, write what you know, if you can't, mm-hmm. you know, get cast and write yourself into something. So also, you know, you write your therapy, you know, in yeah. a lot of ways. I mean, that's an undercurrent of this whole thing anyway. And I, I mean, I get that. And so you could tell a lot of this, like there are people in this, this movie that I'm like, that has to just be like people he knows, you know, like that you can't make up a character like that. You can't make up a guy with his mom and a guy that wears the chain mail, you know, midi. <laughs> like you can't make people like that up. You have to know them. And I mean, that's, and, but that kind of thing makes a movie like this. Um, so like more, I can't use the word real cause it, it's kind of overstating it, but just so much more like lived in, you know, like you just mm-hmm. feel like you're dropping into somebody's life and you just get to be the fly on the wall, you know, and, and you see what, what it's like to get inside of somebody's head, you know? And, yeah. um, yeah, it's kind of neat to see. Sweet. Well, before we get too far into this discussion, I will, Regale you both with a plot summary here. The movie begins with Andrew Large, Largeman, an aspiring actor living in L.A., returning home to New Jersey to attend his mother's funeral. Now, while at the funeral, he recognizes the gravediggers as old friends that he grew up with, and they end up inviting him to a party later that night. So he goes to the party, and after a not insignificant amount of awkward silence and equally awkward conversation, a rousing game of spin the bottle is played, and the real party commences. The morning after the party, Andrew proceeds uh, to visit a neurologist appointment that his dad, who is also his psychiatrist, which isn't weird at all, scheduled for him. Now, while in the waiting room of his neurology appointment, Andrew meets a weird and whimsical girl named Sam, who is a pathological liar and shins enthusiast. Large is then called into his initial meeting with his doctor, where it's revealed that he's been on some form of mood stabilizers prescribed by his doctor dad since he was a teenager. Now, after the appointment, Andrew finds Sam outside of the office, and he eventually offers her a ride home on his sweet bike. 
And he's invited in to her cozy but chaotic home where he meets her mother, her brother, and helps bury a hamster in their own pet cemetery. Now, flash forward a day or two, and Andrew and Sam spend another day together that ends in front of the fire with his closest, as far as we know, friends at his friend Jesse's mansion. While sitting in front of the fire, Large opens up, and we learn that when he was nine, he pushed his mother and it resulted in an accident that left her a paraplegic. That accident resulted in his father prescribing him a number of different medications and then ultimately shipping Andrew off to boarding school years later. The next day, Andrew's friend Mark takes him and Sam on an adventure that rivals that of the Goonies. Uh, Not really, but you get the idea. Uh, They go on this adventure to track down a going-away present for Andrew from Mark. The whole thing ends in a quarry where Mark secures the gift, which turns out to be Andrew's mother's favorite pendant. Now, before leaving New Jersey to head back to L.A., Andrew and his father have a semi heart to heart where they kind of make up. And then the morning after, Andrew says goodbye to Sam at the airport, acknowledging that she changed his life. And then he leaves for the gate. And we cut to Sam desperately crying in a phone booth. And then Andrew returns, telling Sam that he doesn't want to waste any more of his life without her in it. And scene. I mean, it's like a Shin song sort of come to life (laughs) in a lot of ways. I think I'm I'm not alone on this podcast being the fan of the uh, what I guess is brought or called the uh, the college complaint rock um, stuff. But I I dug that kind of music. So um, I I was down for just the whole motif because I think a, a good soundtrack particularly in a movie like this and i think this one won like a grammy or something for best compilation can set the tone of a movie in a lot of ways and you know, i dropped singles early on as a big one like that movie's not terribly memorable um except like eddie vetter's trying to act in it which is sort of funny because he's terrible <laughs> at it but the soundtrack is killer like if you're into the post grunge grunge rock seattle you know rock era stuff so and it, it sort of frames the film for you. And I think a lot of ways that like my brother's seminal films were like, you know, the breakfast club and stuff like that for his generation. He's a little older gen X. And so all of that eighties new wave stuff that's in that, you know, that one is just, it's as iconic as the movie in some ways. And so I, I like the way that this um, soundtrack just drops us right into this sort of um, meaningless or maybe even um, emotionless melancholy. And I don't, I don't know how else to describe it. It's just the jangle of sadness, but without being like overtly sad. Yeah, that that was the tune of every indie song that I think was coming out <laughs> for yeah. really, I guess, like 2004 to 2006. And I loved every single band that did that. <laughs> So when we first open with the movie and the very first song, I can't, I honestly cannot think of what the opening song was, a Shin song maybe, but like very opening credits. I was like, oh, right. That's why I like this movie so much. I do remember all of this because it was playing my music. Yeah. I mean, you get, you get Coldplay in this, Iron and Wine, you know, Bonnie. Imogen Heap. Right. And then they even throw in like a little bit of Simon and Garfunkel just to, you know, throw back or whatever. (laughs) And I I think that's cool though. I mean, because that, 
I don't know. It just, it, again, it sets a movie in a particular time. And that's the danger of a soundtrack. Sometimes it's like, it can really frame something around a specific moment in time, but that's not always a bad thing. Like who among us doesn't hear power of love from Huey Lewis in the news and not automatically want to grab a skateboard and hook onto the back of a Jeep pulling out of a Burger King while you know, our <laughs> that scientist friend is on vacation. I mean, that's, that's my life. I don't know about y'all. And Zach Braff wrote this with like that soundtrack in mind, like the Mm -hmm. writing of the script and the choosing of the soundtrack and every needle drop that was in that movie was Zach Braff's. And I think I read that when he sent his script to people, he also sent them like a mixtape basically of every song. And in the script, it had specifically like, this is when the song starts playing. I don't know anything about Zach Braff, but I wonder if he's got any background in like musical theater and stuff. Cause that's the reason I like musical theater is that the song. I don't know. I could see it it, though. Yeah. That's very much like a musical theater person's answer to like, let me set the emotion for you as you read these words. Well, he grew up in New Jersey. So this whole movie is like, uh, you know, this is his snippet of the autobiography that he wants us to see. We are a fly on the wall. I think you said Jay for this, but I mean, I feel like you grow up in New Jersey that close to New York city. You've got to have a little bit of musical theater background in you. Be hard to think that you wouldn't at least. So, well, he went to one of those uh, performing arts high schools, like with um, Lauren Hill, actually. Was oh. One of his classmates. Oh, cool. So that, that kind of, yeah, that kind of tracks into his interest. Uh, with that but yeah the the way i know this movie best is through all of the garden state memes where (laughs) the headphones off he's like this will change your life and she puts it on his head and it's like the screaming goat screaming (laughs) it's it's a clip of winnebago man or uh it's (laughs) we've Oh my, that moment's so, there's so much of this movie that's so relatable. That moment specifically on both sides, because I feel like I've definitely tried to introduce someone to a piece of music that I thought would change their life. And their reaction was like, oh, it's good. And vice versa. I've been both people. I will tell this story now on Ron's wife, Holly, who I've I've said many times I've been friends with for a long, long time. When I moved away from the town we both were in, in college or whatever, she made me a tape of stuff, not so much a mixtape of like, Jay, you have to get like whatever bad music I was listening to out of your tape deck and listen to something (laughs) good for once. And like, it was just this mix of very much like this kind of stuff, like Iron and Wine. It was some really good music though at the time. And I thought, oh, this is good. This is cool. It's I, I remember that, but I, but it, we would, I would do that with friends too. Like, Oh, you got to hear this song. It's the most amazing thing ever. And then um, I remember walking into a, um, a, a music store when those were still things. Remember those? And a friend of mine said, dude, you need to listen to this band. As much as you like the counting crows, this is like the more upbeat version of that. And he handed me the first album of matchbox 20. So before matchbox 20 sucked, they were actually good on that first record. And <laughs> I, I remember going like, yeah, I love that. And, um, but yeah, I, that's a fun thing to see here. And I also love the, like the very small pieces we get of him in Los Angeles where he's yeah. like, he's laying 
laying in bed and it's almost like he's Cameron and Ferris Bueller again. <laughs> he's in a mm-hmm. little tomb and there's that really elaborate answering machine phone. And I'm like, only an aspiring actor would have that something with like three lines on it or something like that. It was just, it was just funny to me to see that whole thing play out. Yeah. And there's nothing else in there except for that fancy answering machine phone and this bed and this, his, I guess, cell phone plugged in to the wall. Mm-hmm. It's very nope. sterile. It almost looks like a, like a, I don't know. I don't it's want, like an not insane. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Like an institution. Yeah. Well, That's I mean, isn't that what we're for. supposed to get from it? Cause we find out he's on all these drugs, mm-hmm. you know, from his dad. And he says in, a little bit later in the first act that he, he just stopped taking them. Yeah. After he got the call that his mom died. And but like that, he lives in kind of this sort of, I'm going to say the word depressed and I don't mean, mean depression. I mean, just flattened kind of affect state like, at all times. And so totally numb like all that. the time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean that, that room is comfortably numb in a lot of ways. That, that <laughs> did look really comfortable. But, it did. Yeah. Now my question is, was the bed on a bed or was it just a mattress on the ground? Right. It, it was like a, it was on the ground. I, Took a closer look at that, too, because I noticed it. It looked like it was just a mattress on the floor. I think it was on one of those metal bed frames, and he had a white bed skirt around it. Do you guys remember? Did you ever do that? So, like, people couldn't see you had the crappy metal frame. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, you just put a bed skirt around it. Yep. Yep. I know exactly what you're talking about. So. I, there's that, and then when we see him in his, uh, is that supposed to be a Japanese or Chinese or fusion restaurant? It's a Whatever Vietnamese that restaurant. That's it. Okay, but he's got yeah. like the he's got the wings painted on his eyes, <laughs> and it's I mean it's so, I mean it's, I don't want to say offensive because it, well, it was played as a joke, but it's like so pretentious but kind of funny, but also like very much how I would think like yes, a place like that in LA would would want to come off with you know their their weight staff and stuff he's gonna come up yeah and And i love him like putting that eyeliner on with no mirror no nothing as he's getting yelled at in the kitchen like he's done it a million times before because this is just part of the uniform yeah i mean isn't that the joke that every working actor in la is a a waiter and things Mm -hmm. like that somebody you make make a living at it so it's you're doing that you're doing temp work somewhere because you can get you can flip a shift pretty quick to get to an audition and things like that that's the whole point yep So there's one other part that I forgot that I thought was so funny. I actually rewound it when he shows up to work and the gas pump is still in his gas tank. Mm-hmm. Drove right off. <laughs> I don't know why, but I'm like, I feel like I've done that before. I haven't actually, but it's absolutely something that I would have done at some point. I think we've all driven off and not closed the cap back. Yeah. You know, or forgotten yeah, for that. Sure. Like, yeah, I mean, I've, I've lived that life. Now, and, uh, I've I've never seen someone uh, drive off, but I have seen someone with the hose hanging, the breakaway hose hanging from the side of their car. Wow. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I obviously like he's just out of it because he's mm-hmm. on so much crap. Well, he's he's out of it for two reasons, right? He's out of it for the drugs that he's on, but it's also like that's pretty horrendous news. To get, and we, I mean, we know everything we need to know about him and his father's relationship. When his father says, If you want to take my calls, I don't know how else to do this. And he just drops that on the yeah. and hangs up. And I'm like, 
Wow. Because there's another movie from the 80s that this sort of plays in a little bit of that. It's a movie called Nothing in Common with Tom Hanks and Jackie Gleason. It's actually Jackie Gleason's last movie. And, and there's it's not great, but it, there's some good heart to it. And there's a whole scene where Tom Hanks is like basically making out with a girl in his apartment and he's not answering the phone. And Jackie Gleason's like, your mother left me. I just thought you might want to know. And he hung up the phone. It's like, what? You know, it's just sort of this show stopping moment. And so I, I transported back to the memories of that. I'm like, okay, wow. How would you deal with that? So if you're already kind of flat affect, now you have this tremendous news. And as we'll learn more about why that would affect him in a very specific way, you know, mm-hmm. later on in the story, like I, this guy is beyond out of it. Like he is completely just detached from everything. Yeah. And he clearly, I mean, he's going home cause you kind of have to after news like that, you know, mm-hmm. obviously he wanted to on some level, but that is like not the most fun experience to go home after you haven't been there for nine years and trying to interact with people who you haven't seen for nine years and you're all different people, but you're not entirely different people. And that's why like that party after the funeral was like, yeah, I've, I remember being there at just not really knowing what to talk about and kind of like the, yep, <laughs> cool. Yeah. Glad I came. <laughs> good to to see y'all again too but this beat hanging out with my dad at home i guess so right you know which i guess we find out ultimately he was really trying to do well i mean the the whole thing is like he's taking drugs and he's making out with pretty women and all this and like he's not like his pulse never gives above like 40 like he's just so out of everything and you don't know I think the first time you really see him smile or do anything is when he gets on that that uh, sidecar motorcycle thing that yeah. his father left him. Like that whole thing. Like I think I remembered that about this movie. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, that's a thing. When he finally goes to go meet with the psychiatrist or whatever, and um, this is the first time you see him kind of start to come around. And I don't know if he's playing that as if like the drugs have finally gotten out of my system and now I can be more me or what, but. Um, or if it's just the combo of all the medicine and the grief and everything else at the same time. But um, I feel like I, I do need to interject because my Brian said the most, like the least believable part in the entire movie was having a motorcycle that wasn't turned on for nine years and it just starts right up. <laughs> and I was like, I didn't even think about that because we ride ours regularly. And sometimes it just doesn't start like for no reason. I mean, there's always a reason, but yeah. like, you know, <laughs> hasn't been touched for nine years. The oil's definitely bad. The gas is definitely bad. His dad's not riding it. His mom certainly wasn't riding well, it. I, I thought about that. I'm glad you brought that up because I have a theory about that. Okay. I, I, you know, when you, and I'll just skip to the end, like, he and his dad, the relationship they have, it's very complicated, but not in like a Hollywood tropey way. Like I expected them to like yell at each other and I don't want your life and all that shit, you know, <laughs> in this movie. And they don't do that. Like, it's very much like he, I think he's at a point where he's like, I understand why my dad reacted the way he did. Cause it's sort of what he does. And so he just, he just treated me, 
like a patient. And I'm okay with that. And I'm forgiving for that. And it's okay. I kind of wondered if dad didn't keep that motorcycle up and running thinking one day Andrew's going to come home and I want him to be able to ride this. Like I just sort of had that pit theory in my head. I could see that. Yeah, that's, that's reasonable. And I mean, we, I, I would assume that if nothing else, maybe he was like, well, he's going to be here for a few days. He'll, he's going to need some way to get around and I don't want to give him my car. Mm-hmm. So um, let's get the motorcycle back in shape for him. But I, I like your theory, Jay. I mean, I don't know. It, it, there's nothing to tell us that in the movie other than what could have been one of those very stereotypical, I hate you, you hate me performances where it doesn't play that way at all. It's very quiet in a way. And I give a lot of it. And that's funny to say about Ian Holm, who can be very large when he wants to be in, in a role, but, and then Zach Braff who can be, you know, goofy and, and all those things for them to play the way that they did. And I mean, they go at each other a little bit, but I don't want to say that like they don't, you know, lose it a little bit, but like, I'm thinking back again to my nothing in common reference. Like there's times when Tom Hanks and Jackie Gleason absolutely go at each other. And it's some of the, it's like, you see that and it's a very young Tom Hanks and you're like, Oh, you can see the shades of like the, the Oscar winner in that. He just wasn't quite there yet, but going up against such a heavyweight, like Gleason was, was cool to see. And it's neat to watch Zach Braff and, and him play off of each other. And then also you just pepper in all these people that he's around. Like, I mean, just the litany of people in this cast. And I love Peter Skarsgård. I'll watch him literally like read the phone book to me in a movie. He's just a, just a cool character actor. I don't think I've ever seen him give a bad performance in anything. The grave digger friend who has the mom, Jean smart, who we all know from a hundred things. Right. Mm -hmm. But she's just sort of this chain smoking kind of white trash, you know, whatever. And I love how she's trying to get him to watch like the real estate tapes, you know, that's that's the ticket out of town. And I'm just, I mean, but I knew people like that. And I was like, oh, I get, it's like a very lived in universe here. It's sort of sort of fun to see all these people. Yeah. I really appreciate a movie that's chock full of character actors. And this is definitely has a lot of people that I was like, oh, it's, that's Rachel's dad from friends. And oh, it, method man just showed up and oh <laughs> yeah, that's uh, Jackie Hoffman from feud Betty versus Joan. And oh, <laughs> Hey, it's Dennis O'Hare from every season of American horror story that I've had to write about. And, right. Oh crap. It's, it's what's his face. Big bang theory. Well, I mean, yeah. Ron Liebman comes in as that other doctor, and I'm like, you will forever be Freddie Hugo from the awful Rhinestone, Dolly Parton, Sylvester Stallone movie for me, sir, even though I know you did other work. And I think you won like a Tony or something at one point, but I, I love seeing him pop in too. It's just that one scene. And then Jim Parsons, who nobody knew at the time, right? Because Big Bang Theory was not a thing yet. But right. he just sort of pops in as the, uh, the, the, old friend that works at the medieval times place which is and is dating mark's mom right which is also (laughs) okay sure i mean i don't i don't know you're our resident jersey expert how true to life are these people because i don't know i mean i don't know if it's necessarily like a new jersey thing specifically but i feel like all of these people are all of this is possible, especially having lived, honestly, in my hometown, any of this is possible. And it's just like a little mountain town in Virginia. So it happens. I've had I, I friends, mean, deep friends, parents. I, I feel like this town is like two like towns over from wherever Kevin Smith shot the original clerks in. 
Like there's some of the same groups. Leonardo, New Jersey. Right. Like, like those Mm -hmm. are like the older siblings of this group of people, you know, berserker guys, you know, somebody's cousin (laughs) or whatever. And, you know, Jay and Silent Bob or, you know, somebody's older brother, you know, like I, I could see that because it feels like the same sort of, I don't, again, the same motif and stuff. And I don't even know if yeah. Graf was going for that, but it, like just the way it even looks, it looks like the way Kevin Smith would shoot a movie with a lot less dialogue and a That's lot a less cursing. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah. But, but it looked a lot like the way Kevin Smith likes to frame shots of dialogue with people and two shots and all that kind of stuff. And I don't know. I just thought, I thought it was neat because again, it, it gives us that fly on the wall perspective, but without being like voyeuristic about it. You know what I mean? Like we're just, we're also there. Like we were, we're the Uber driver or whatever at that moment of the pizza guy. (laughs) Yeah. The, uh, the voyeurism comes later in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, (laughs) no, that's a, that's a really interesting point to bring up uh, Kevin Smith and the New Jersey filmmaking connection there. Uh, You're definitely onto something because I was watching the movie. I was like, it's like if Kevin Smith had discovered Mumblecore. Yeah, tried to write naturalistic <laughs> dialogue, but Kevin Smithisms just kept coming through. Um, it, it feels very much like uh, throughout the whole movie, uh, Sam never feels like she's not written by Zach Braff, um, and in a way that some of the other characters have a little bit more uh, of life and substance. It feels very much like oh, a guy who's like thirty years old wrote this girl. Um, uh, th- that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just an observation that, that stuck out to me like right away. Yeah. I mean, look, we have to talk about Natalie Portman as mm-hmm. the quintessential manic pixie dream girl. Cause that's, I mean, it's <laughs> no, like he decided no. I'm going to write that. Into <laughs> life. <laughs> just Everybody it- knows the, the quintessential manic, manic pixie dream girl is, um, Yes. Uh, what's her face from Elizabethtown? Because that's where Nathan Rabin coined the phrase "Manic Pixie Dream Girl" in a review of Elizabethtown. But the but the proto Manic Pixie Dream Girl and who I think Zach Braff was trying to to tap into is um, Shirley MacLaine from The Apartment. I have not seen that, so I can't weigh in on the Manic Pixie Dream Girl assessment. Jay. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm just saying it's a it's an archetype that he's building. I, I mean, he's really you nailed it, Ron. Like this is definitely a a, a role that was written for a woman by a man who has had a lot of conversations with specific types of women and decided to put them all into one person that would never <laughs> exist in a natural state. <laughs> but but so. uh, let's not, uh, let's not point out that he was dating Mandy Moore at the time of this movie. Was I he mean, really? He was. I didn't know that. So, okay. So I was not aware of that, but okay. Good for so, him. Um, I, I was mean, thinking maybe I, that this this tells us a little bit about Mandy Moore that that we didn't necessarily need to know. <laughs> could be Ryan Adams would also like to have a word about that, but then she has a few for him too, so we don't have to go down that road. But uh, yeah, um, though this does feel like that same sort of era. I'd better I'm surprised Ryan Adams is not on this soundtrack because this would have been his time to not shine, but also to exist and and to put a lot of music <laughs> into the world and. Um, yeah, I don't. But Sam as a character is, uh, I mean, she's obviously the, the exact opposite of this guy because she's nothing but energy. 
like at all times, but in no like specific direction. So she's not just bouncing off the walls. She's like bouncing in directions that don't seem to really connect. <laughs> and she has this just varied random life, you know, but is also incredibly comfortable with it. And I don't know that those things like actually exist, but it's fun to watch Natalie Portman get to do this because she, we got to remember what she was doing at the time it was like some of the most stilted dialogue in the history of cinema is what George Lucas was having her <laughs> spit out in those, those prequel movies. And I don't hate those, you know, and I don't hate her in them, but that's not exactly like stuff to chew on as an actor like to, you know, do that crap. And then to come and get to do this is it's got to be a real change of pace. Do any of us have a good George Lucas impression? Well, Natalie, no. I just I just need you to to you know be a little more low key there because uh, you know this is all written by a fourth grader on a fucking Hallmark card, and that's, I mean, that, that's pretty much the dialogue. <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> whereas if George Lucas was directing this, it wouldn't be faster and more intense. It'd be like more low key, Zach. Just just lay in the floor like a like a piece of that rug, you know. <laughs> Uh, maybe Bob Ross would be a better director for this because this movie is partially a Bob Ross painting. But um, but Sam is as a I think it's neat that she is a compulsive liar and but the way she admits to it is funny. Like there's some like Natalie Portman actually has good comic timing. She, I don't know that she's ever fully leaned into it in a role, but she should because she could be really funny and like she clearly had a lot of good comedy and, and comic timing with Zach Braff in this. And that's not easy to say. Cause he's, I mean, you know, you go because a comedian, you got to hold the chop and that's not an easy thing to do. They were uh, friends uh, because they went to the same uh, acting camp thing together and him and, and, and basically this movie is full of friends of his from New Jersey I was going to say, yeah, like I knew Sarsgaard was in that crew and and such, so that that makes total sense. But um, I don't know. I I I like her in this though because I think I don't think you're supposed to dislike her at all, and she is definitely the heart of all of this because Andrew can't really emote anything because he's drugged it out of himself or he's beaten it down in himself so much and he's blamed himself for so much shit in his life that he can't feel anything you know and so she has to feel all of it for both of them and that's not an easy thing to do i mean Lindsay, you're still acting to this day so like you, you have to do these roles where you have to carry somebody else's emotions that can't be easy to do i don't hey yeah i don't i don't even know how to it's not it de it depends honestly on what the role is i think some things are really hard and I've seen people break down on stage in the middle of a rehearsal because they just can't do it anymore. You know, like they have given all that they can give for that day and they just lose it. You know, they have to like, they have to have a good ugly cry and, and have like the rest of the cast basically like pat them on the, on the back. I've never, well, that's not true. Once or twice I've had some, I guess, more intense roles and feelings and stuff, but I prefer comedic <laughs> acting. So I'm not always, not always in it. I think, um, I think Natalie Portman adds like such a, I, I mean, you're right. She is the heart of, this and I think 
seeing she's like she's like in Goldilocks and the Three Bears. She is the baby bear. Like she's the perfect bear because you have Large, who is in this super sterile environment and has been in this super sterile environment for what we can, I think, presume most of his life, where his dad is just trying to keep things at an even keel. And even in his room in the opening, we see him in this super sterile environment. And then his friend Mark, right, who had the party and his life is pure chaos. And he's got, you know, a mom who doesn't really, you know, a mom who's a mom, but not a mom as we think of a mom being, (laughs) if that makes sense. You know, she's, she's smoking pot and doing all this stuff with her kid. And then I feel like Sam is this nice, happy, perfect medium where her life is a little chaotic and a little crazy, but it's super cozy and super comfy and really happy and full of love. And, you know, they take in all these animals and, I think she's just like the nice, like perfect little happy medium that brings everybody together. I mean, like we, you, you think about Peter Skarsgård, particularly the Mark character, and I don't know if y'all remember the Ben Affleck's character in Goodwill Hunting, who's the best friend or whatever. Mm-hmm. I felt like this is a more realistic version of who that guy would actually be. Like Ben Affleck played that like in a real cheesy way that only he can right and i know he said he was playing people that he went to high school with and i'm like whatever sure but this feels like a real person like yes he is total chaos but he's also like one of the most confident people in what he yeah, is he's not unhappy in his no. life at all like he, he doesn't seem yeah. like he's unhappy at all no he, and that's, that's the crazy yeah. thing is like he's just like yeah i mean this is what i do and fine you know he, he doesn't he doesn't want more and he doesn't need more. He's fine, you know, with it. And mm-hmm. that there's something like neat. And I could see why, why Zach Braff's character would be friends with a person like that because his emotions have been so tamped down by drugs and also just life and everything else. And his own psychology to have a friend who is so unabashedly just real at all times and yeah. doesn't, doesn't give a damn what anybody else thinks. There's like, there's a real value in that um, to have somebody like that in your life. There could be some danger in it too, because they can get you into some real shit. But it, you know, at this point in life, they're, they're both kind of beyond just being ridiculous. Though I think it's, it's hilarious that, it, I mean, it's not hilarious, but it's hilarious the way they play off that he, he steals jewelry off of people that he buries, you know, and like, mm-hmm. Oh, that is so cold. But it's also like, there's something so just coldly capitalism about it too. It's like, yeah, but I mean, like the way he plays it off, I don't know. I I just thought that was such a neat character twist. And I'm like, again, that's gotta be something that's gotta be a real person. Zach Braff knows like that, that does that or did that. This is such an oddly specific detail. I feel like the grave digger robbing the corpses is a, is, is a pretty old trope though. Yeah, I wonder how common that is. I don't know any grave diggers. I don't know I if don't, you guys do. I, I don't actually, so I don't know. I, I I guess it is, but I think maybe the way it's played here is what's different for me, Ron. It's like it's, it gets, yeah. just seems like it's just sort of it's as flat as Andrew, you know, in some ways. And yeah, it's just like this is what it is. I I, I robbed from these corpses, but yeah, yeah. Um, I think these days they seal a lot of the coffins, so it's harder to uh, 
steal from the the, the deceased. Mm. Yeah, and a lot of that times um, they'll put jewelry on the the person to be buried and then take it off before they seal the casket up and give it back to the family to prevent things like this. Now, um, if he had yeah, come up mean- with a big bag full of gold teeth, <laughs> then it's that- never it's a much different character, I think. <laughs> It's very darker, yeah. It's much, much darker if he starts pulling that out. But it's rings and pendants and things like that. So when my, when my mom was buried, they took her like her rings off of her and gave them to us, you know, and stuff before they closed it up. And so, you know, yeah, I think you're right. That's something that's just that more common these days. And and I mean, truly, they lock it when they you know close it up. So that's, that's how it is. But um, I don't know. I, I again, I. I, what I found about this movie, and this is what the bold thing is, is Zach Braff is writing himself as the lead character. He's directing himself. So this is like a vanity project for him, but he's not making it about him. And that's a really bold choice too, because he's sort of letting everything else around him kind of eat the air in the room. And, you know, Natalie Portman's very big in this and, and you've got uh, Mark and Gene Smart, his mom is, is big. And you've got all these people in Method Man, you know, in his whole peep show <laughs> situation and all, all this other just crazy shit going on in this movie. And he's just sort of laying back in, it's neat to be the lead protagonist of a story, but also to be the avatar for the audience at the same time. And I, I can't think of another movie where necessarily that was the case. And I, I don't know, I thought, I thought it was a, an interesting choice and kind of a fun one to, to follow along. But is he really laying back or is he just channeling all of his energy and all of the things he wants to say and and all of the things he wants to put across into the specifically into the Sam character who is. Oh, I think think you're exactly right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's very much a a Zach Braff wish fulfillment character. Mm Well, I mean, it's it's the same as we talked about Kevin Smith, the not the Dante character, but the Randall character, the video store, you know, Jeff Anderson's character. That's Kevin Smith. Like he was that guy. He just didn't think he could pull it off. And so he all the all the lines, all the quippy things that that guy says are what Kevin Smith said or would say. And so it's yeah, it's I've seen that before. And uh, I think you're dead on. Like he's pushing all of that through Sam um, and sort of who he really is. Which in and of itself, I, I think, is a, is a very interesting choice. It, it's almost as if, like, it's the Kevin Smith thing we just mentioned. Like, he, he's not necessarily sure he can pull off this sort of character energy and this sort of character behavior. So he gives it over to someone who, who for better or worse, or for better and worse, really <laughs> gives a lot of energy to this performance. Yeah, there's times when Natalie Portman is at about a nine, and I'm like, that that could have been a six. <laughs> and I'm, I'm just going to say, like, she's part of a problem for me in this movie. I I did not enjoy everything she gave us in this this film. There's times when it's just a little like it's too stereotypical. It's too much. Like she's overselling it a little bit. Like for me, like the first I don't know two thirds of the movie, she's just insufferable. And Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's because I didn't watch this when I was, you know, in my 20s and watched it now that I'm 41, or if it's just because I've never really had the patience for those sorts of people in my life. (laughs) (laughs) Fair. (laughs) I had more patience for them when I was in my 20s than I do now. Right. I'll say that. 
Oh, well, I, mean, I think I think it, there's everybody crosses a barrier at some point when you're just like, eh, I don't need your drama. I don't need you know, <laughs> I'm just gonna not do this today. So remember one of my friends once said this thing that I will never ever forget. I still think about it to this day. And it was one morning we worked together, and there was one morning there was some drama and just like very the similar vibe, and she just goes. I have not had enough coffee for all of your feelings today, Amanda. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yeah. and she was. <laughs> Lindsay, I want you to know you just did an incredible Diana Scarwood impersonation and you didn't realize you did it because you were so not one of your fans. <laughs> That's awesome. So, oh, yeah. But yeah, but it's no, like that. No, it, you <laughs> you can't even touch that energy. Yeah, Ron, you hit the word. Insufferable is the word. Like, <laughs> this character really, really is, and that's and that's why it's such a hard sell as a romance. Because I'm like, no, man, I don't think y'all are good together. This is probably a bad idea, and I. I did. I wanted him to get on the plane and go back and live his life, and her to go live hers, and that would be it. I hated the. I didn't want him to come back. I I didn't want that at the end. I'll just say it now. Yeah, I don't know if she's the only reason he stayed. I think there were a lot of other reasons besides her. She may have been like the catalyst. Um, and you're right. I don't know if I buy it as a romance, but what I did like about I would, I guess, like the lack of romance or the lack of on-screen romance that we saw is that this uh, tryst or whatever we want to call it, romantic encounter between them wasn't necessarily there to like move the plot forward, the romantic part. We needed her character to make things happen in the movie, but we didn't need to see them romantically involved to know that that's what was happening. And so I really appreciated like the way that the way that was written or not written into it. It's one of my biggest pet peeves is when a romance or something like that is written into a movie where it does not belong and it doesn't matter and it's just superfluous and annoying, especially mm-hmm. in like a horror movie where like you just want to get back to the blood and guts or a sci-fi movie where you just want to get back to the aliens. Like we don't, we don't need a, we don't need a sex scene. Maybe we do. I don't know. But in this movie they didn't and I thought it worked. Well, I mean, there's there's some movies where like it just wouldn't make any sense. Like if Arnold started making out with the the village girl in the middle of the Predator movie, like that would have been a bad, like that wouldn't have worked. Like that, you don't need that, right? But maybe you know, Kari Wer and Owen Wilson need to make out an anaconda in the jungle because it might serve like the goofiness of the plot better. It's, it just all depends on time and place. So sure, sure. Yes, I just dropped Predator and, and Anaconda in a movie a review about Garden State, but hey, that's how my life works on Filmstrap. <laughs> well, there's no movie that can't be improved by it becoming a midway through becoming a secret Predator movie. So, like, <laughs> you know what? Is. Not a secret Christmas movie. This movie, we should say, like that. No moment is this Christmassy at all. Well, she Not does a have a Christmas tree. She does. I know, but she, she's done taking it down. <laughs> yeah. 
just because they didn't take it down, which I had friends like that. But so. it's implied that it's fall. Mm-hmm. But my yeah, point was, not- my point was, this would be a much better movie as, as if um, the the crevasse at the end, if the predator comes crawling out of it. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I like how you said that, the crevasse at the end. Yes. And, That's very. And then, yeah. and then they start playing the. Uh, <laughs> from great heights, and then the predator like pops up a thing and laser beam sack right off of the brain. Ron needs to write this fan fiction immediately. I <laughs> know uh, the, the predator of Garden State. Lithium, uh, Garden State colon <laughs> lithium B <the> predator. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Please come take me, sweet sweet predator death. That would be how that would go. Yeah. Um, no, I mean it's it is such a downtrodden thing. But we got to talk hey, about hey, like your hey, goon, your, your hey, little predator. goonies. Hey predator, do you, do you want to go do some drugs with me, predator? <laughs> <laughs> got all kinds of pills in, in, in my house. We can go do some all, pills, Predator. All of a sudden, this became an NPR. <laughs> do you want to meet Method Man? I know Method Man. He's pretty cool with the Predators. Oh, my God. Uh, I felt like this movie true. is the most mannered mumblecore movie that ever mumblecored. Yeah, like, I feel yeah. like um, the Duplass brothers and Joe Swanberg and and Greta Gerwig and all those people took the mumbly, quiet parts of Garden State and they're like, "Yeah, I can make a movie out of that." Yeah, I can I can make a movie where the camera doesn't really move. That's that's totally within my wheelhouse. And they yeah, they just I mean, took the uh, the the vulnerability of the Zach Braff character. Like, okay, we'll just get some guy naked. That'll be his vulnerability part. <laughs> Yeah, with with the whole emotion of Death Cab for Cutie to, to undercore all of it. I mean, that's yeah. how it works. So, Lindsay, we got to go back to your 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 Goonies like adventure though that you you called it like that. Well, was, there are a lot that, of parallels to it, right? They're going yeah. on an adventure. They don't know exactly where they're going. It is like a treasure hunt. So they, you know, stop at the hotel first for a little uh, peep show that they didn't know they were going to get. And then I can't, what did method man or he gave them something, a key or directions or he, he I gave don't know. them uh, directions to Dennis O'Hare's arc. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then, yeah, they, they end up at an arc. So there's the boat. There's our Goonies boat where they find their treasure. And then they scream into an abyss. Like it had, I mean, I, I you know, think you're, you're dead on. I think Zach Braff is relating to something that meant a lot to him as a kid. Like that movie yeah. was clearly, it was giving me like Goonies slash stand by me vibes. Yeah. Yeah. Very much a, a stand by me. I could see. Yeah. It is, uh, Zach- and I guess it wasn't a junkyard. It was like a site. So right. in my head, it was always a junkyard, but. I was just going to ask if Zach Braff was playing the corpse in Stand By Me that they find. <laughs> it could be the, the t- titular body. So it could be Kevin Costner in The Big Chill. Um, I did look up that abyss to see if it was a place I could go visit. Is and it, it was, it is real. It was real. Now there are condos built on it. So, <laughs> of <yeah>. course. <laughs> Because never underestimate development. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's been the, filled the, in the, and the, the estates at uh, the estates at the estates at uh, existential crevasse. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, I hope they came. I don't know what they were called, but I did look it up to see because New Jersey has a lot of these fun little quirky like ecological phenomenons like that, like just random, random stuff everywhere. And I learn about something weird at least weekly. And I'm like, why, why is that a thing? And why is it in New Jersey? And how have we not seen that yet? Cause you don't think it's a big state. Well, as the know? great, there's a ton of stuff as, like as that. the great vampire Angelus once said, a cough of the demon came forth to swallow the world. And it was a virtuous night that pierced his heart and turned him to stone. And he was buried where no man could ever look unless of course they put up low rent housing. And that, that, that's the story. So, with our entire <laughs> lives, everything's been paved over at one time or another. So. It's true. Yeah. Sad and true. But what do y'all think about the end of it where he, he, he we get the big reveal of like what happened to his mother and everything. Like there's a lot of ways that could have come off and I'll give Zach Braff credit for not dropping that in like this big emotional anvil on everybody. Like he, it subtly sort of comes out, you know, and he just sort of lets that detail come through. It didn't slip it, but it's more like, here's the story that this is why all of this is maybe a little different than any other time your mother passed away. I don't know. what y'all think of the way that they played that off? I liked his I liked his choice to do it low key. I mean, the whole movie was him being low key, so that makes sense. Hmm. What did he say? Like it's shocking how much of his life was determined by a small piece of plastic or something like that, just because the yeah. latch on the dishwasher door had fallen open. Yeah. I crazy. think that yeah, I think that really works as a stylistic choice. I feel like Someone in this movie has to underplay things, and by default, it would have to be him because you've, he's surrounded by all these bigger characters. And you know, you've got that Sam sucking every little bit of oxygen out of every room she goes into. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I really like that because I feel like if that was the time he had started to emote, it would have been too obvious, it'd have been too obvious of a choice to make, especially at that time. And I feel like that's that. The back half of this movie, like the last third of the movie, works for me more than the first two thirds. Even Mm -hmm. if it's not nearly as funny, it becomes like um, it kind of leans into the innate sweetness of of the Sarsgaard character and of Sam and even of uh, Zach Braff's character. Like it it finds that kind of emotional niceness that the innate goodness of these people that kind of comes through, you know, he robs corpses, but he's not all bad. And, you know, she <laughs> is a lot to deal with, but, you know, she's also uh, occasionally can act like a person. <laughs> I, I did appreciate <laughs> the, um, she went back to, they had earlier in the movie, they set up the, the bit where they are going to have a code where she tugs her ear and that's when it's time to go. <laughs> I appreciate when they meet uh, Kevin at the handy Mart. Um, I mm-hmm. think his name is Kevin at the handy Mart. She immediately starts tugging on her ear like crazy. <laughs> I thought that was fun. That was cute. Yeah. But yeah, I that that whole sequence does kind of work for me. And it it helps to round out the the sort of jaggedness of the character, I think. And I guess like 
two of his friends had known him, it sounded like, since he was a kid, but they never knew that story. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's because he went off all of his meds and was just like, you know, this is the time to let it out. I think too, like throughout the movie, there was just like for everyone, not necessarily just like Zach Braff's character, but there was this people putting expectations on all these other people. So everyone was like, Oh yeah, large, you're like this big actor now. And you were in this thing. And he's like, that's not like totally accurate. I was in a thing. I'm not a famous actor. (laughs) Like, (laughs) Let's, (laughs) let's not get ahead of ourselves here. And then you have Sam's mom. Who's like, she could have gone to the Olympics. And Sam's like, no, no, that's not the case. And I think with this like group of people in front of the fireplace, there were like no expectations that anyone had to meet. And so it was just a really comfortable space for them to just like be real with each other. Yeah. Isn't there like everyone has to have a friend or two in your life that you're just completely real with. You don't have to put on any front with they, they see through all the other crap that everybody tries to lay on you and all the other labels. And you're just, you can just be in that space with them. You don't have to be anything else. Right. And there's some real comfort in that. And I mean, I think this is a lot of what this movie is saying about this part of your twenties or at least Zach Braff's twenties is that, yeah, you know, I'm I'm living in LA so I can be an actor. Ooh. And everybody thinks what that means. But what it really is is I'm, I fake like I'm a Vietnamese person five days a week at a restaurant and I go on auditions and I just wait for the next thing to come around. It's not nearly as glamorous as you think it is. And this is the one group of people I don't have to do any of that crap with because they don't care. And they're just my friends. And like, you got to have friends like that. And that, I mean, I felt like that, it played really well when you got them together. I think it played better than the relationship stuff he had going on with, with Natalie Portman. Cause I'll just say, no, I don't think they ever developed chemistry. Like I don't think I didn't want them no. to go madly in love with each other, but they, I didn't, I didn't think they really like worked. I, I, I felt like this would have been a better, more believable thing. Like I, I, I saw Kirsten Dunst in this movie once called crazy beautiful, where she plays kind of this unhinged sort of young person or whatever. And it, is, has a lot of problems and she's really, really good in it. And the, the fellow they put her opposite of, I don't know his name. I just know he's now the new Magnum PI on, on television or whatever, <laughs> but like they had incredible chemistry together. Like you could see them working together, you know, but I, these two, I just never, never bought. Yeah. yeah it, it, it doesn't quite work for me either, Jay. I, I feel you there. It's, they feel much more, the energy between them is very much a platonic friendship, not a romantic friendship. Mm-hmm. I feel like that might I feel like that might have been a braver choice to just be like, all right, she's gonna bring him out of his shell and then like release him into the world and not bring him out of his shell to, you know, do the manic pixie dream girl trope where, you know, she has to save the depressed guy from himself and then they live happily ever after. Right. Like what would have been the problem if they, if they were just friends, you know, like I think that would have been even sweeter and a little more real, dare I say. Because even then I think she's still like, I genuinely believed that Sam did not want him to go back to LA. Mm -hmm. 
romantic relationship or not, I think that could have worked if it was just a friendship. Like she genuinely like needed him in her life and just didn't want him to go back. Plus, you know, they've only known each other now for like what a week. So you don't know if you're ever going to hear from, from each other again. So I genuinely believed that. And I think that that still could have been achieved even without romantic involvement. I can't, I can't believe Jay that you slighted, uh, the great Jay Hernandez by just referring to him as Magnum PI. I'm, so, I'm sorry, Jay Hernandez. I I don't. I only know you as crazy, beautiful guy and Magnum PI. So and he was also a good in Magnum. Hostel. Yeah. I, you know, a confession. I've only ever seen clips of Hostel. I've never seen Hostel. Oh, so wow. Yeah. Uh, you're not really missing one of the other much, great but... films of the early aughts. Yeah, I, yeah, I kind of missed. <laughs> I like torture porn for me ended with saw it like started and ended. And I just kind of never went down that road. That was not my, my genre. Of but this yeah. was like the two great deadpools of the early two thousands garden state and hostel. <laughs> <laughs> Said a lot about the era. So. Oh, man. Although really, I... if you, if you take uh, garden state as a, as an inspiration for Mumblecore and hostel as an inspiration for torture porn, you might actually be onto something with the stupid thing I just threw out. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> it would work. Hostel was done in such a way, you know, honestly, I I think I watched it a few times, but I don't remember ever not laughing. Okay. Like through most of my, the movie. My impression of Hostel that is if Halloween is Led Zeppelin, <laughs> then Hostel is pretty much Limp Biscuit. Or some other useless new metal band. Mm. Like that's kind of how I feel yeah. about where it played. I mean, it doesn't mean that I don't listen to it and don't like it. I just it's not for me. So. Yeah, no, we, you know, my friends and I enjoyed it when we watched it, but we did not watch it because it was terrifying or it was just like a train wreck. I think, and I don't. The only thing I remember is like a little bit of the gore from it, but you know it was very entertaining at the time. Mm-hmm. Probably didn't age well. I feel like the best part of Hostel was Oli, uh, the Icelandic man they meet uh, while traveling who just becomes part of their adventure, but they don't really know him. He's the guy who ends up getting them going to the hostel, the titular hostel. <laughs> um, All right. Well, I think that brings us to the end of this this film and this discussion on it so let's get your final thoughts and popcorn ratings guys ron would you like to kick us off sure i i feel like if this was a movie if i had saw it when it was originally come out i would have fond memories of it or at least be more accepting of it the way i am something like Elizabethtown, which I kind of like better than this movie or uh, a lot of the other of these sorts of films. Um, It's pretty telling that I thought for three quarters of the movie that Nellie Portman had a secret brain tumor because of how she she was acting. (laughs) And when they were like, oh, well, I had epilepsy and I I fell at my the the lawyer's office that I'm working at is like, okay, she's going to die at the end of this movie. But no, I was thinking of of the Richard Gere, Winona Ryder, May, December romance flick, yes. uh, Autumn in New York. 
Um, yes, or or a countless other lifetime movies. What <laughs> so. countless other movies where the girl comes into the depressed writer's life, improves it, and then leaves? Um, either a walk to remember. Yeah, or yeah. because they die. Um, or or Joe Pesci and with honors for Brendan Fraser. Oh yeah, <laughs> or uh, Sean Connery and. Finding Forrester? Question mark. <laughs> You're the man now, yeah. dog. <laughs> You're the man now, Jacques Braff. <laughs> but no. Um, so, uh, so, so, uh, I was caught by surprise at the end of this movie when she didn't fall over dead. So that that was a fun surprise. Um, but I'm going to give this one a medium popcorn. I can see why people liked it at the time. I can see why it became kind of a thing. But I can also see why the lasting cultural impact has been the memes of her putting the headphones on people's ears. <laughs> because that is like, this character was, uh, the poor Natalie Portman tries her best. And by tries her best, I mean, she gives every ounce of possible energy she can to this performance for good and for bad. And if <laughs> if nothing else, yeah, it is an interesting choice. So uh, medium popcorn for me. Cool. Jay? Yeah, I kind of feel like the same way you said, Ron. Like, if I had seen this when it came out, it might have a different landing point for me. As it is, it's not bad. I do think its soundtrack is one of its strengths. And I think Zach Braff's kind of subtle choices make this a good move for him. Um, I don't think Natalie Portman entirely works. I've said that a lot in this, and I just don't think it it works, and it doesn't work for me at all. And I'm glad they didn't do the trope of she's dying suddenly or something like that. I do think it would have been neater if they were just friends. And she's like, no, I want you to stay because you're my friend, and it's better for you here. Like, I could get that. The thing that makes this movie work for me are all the side people, like Peter Sarsgaard and all those other friends. Like, there's just something very real about all of them and the way they play. And when you surround a movie with good character actors, generally what you're going to get is good performances and when you have a a cutting room full of good performances you can assemble a good film and and this is a totally watchable very fine movie it's not the greatest thing i've ever seen it's certainly not the greatest coming of age movie i've ever seen but it's definitely not the worst either and i've seen a lot worse than this and uh you know it maybe it's no hostile i mean you know as we've talked about but it's it's definitely left a mark and um I'm glad I finally got to sit and watch it all the way through. And and now I can actually say I've seen Zach Braff in something besides a T-Mobile commercial because I've never watched <laughs> anything else front to back. But uh, yeah, I'll give it a medium popcorn. I think it's fine. And and it's a good good watch and kind of a, a good stroll down early 2000s memory lane. Awesome. Well, I walked into this podcast thinking that I was going to give this movie a large popcorn and I, I kind of want to give it like a medium and a half now after talking about that. Usually it's the case. Usually I like the movie more after we talk about it, (laughs) but I don't like it any less. I just, I think that, you know, never underestimate the power of nostalgia, you know, and I did watch it 20 years ago when it came out. And so for me, it was powerful then. And to watch it again, I wouldn't call it powerful by any stretch of the imagination, but it was nostalgic and sweet. And, you know, it's like, oh, I remember when those clothes were in style and everybody loved (laughs) this music. And I remember like, you know, being that like, 
stressed out slash anxious slash depressed pixie dream girl or wanting to be like that Natalie Portman character because that's what people, I guess, aspire to. I don't know. So I still really like the soundtrack a lot. I still listen to a lot of that music. I never grew out of that. Um, so I, <laughs> I will give it the closest thing to a medium and a half that I can, which is a medium popcorn with like extra butter and, and maybe some extra salt and like a diet Coke. I think that's it. Get the full combo meal. Yeah. 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 It's just, it's not, yeah, it's not, it's not quite there. And I feel, I feel wrong giving it a large when there are so many other movies deserving of a large. So I'll fall short of that, but I did very much still enjoy this movie. Well, that's, that's very much an interesting take because that's kind of how this movie is structured, right? You've got the uh, large popcorn bucket with a medium amount of popcorn in it, but it's surrounded by all this other good stuff like the Diet Coke and the hot dog <laughs> and the box candy and even like the salt and the butter on the popcorn to kind of improve the popcorniness of it all. I feel like that's a good metaphor for mm-hmm. Garden State or also that we're all just need to go get some popcorn. Yeah, now it really wants a popcorn. <laughs> I did I have do. a big bucket of popcorn when I watched it, so maybe that's where my head is at. There you go. But yeah, there's our there's our metaphor, folks. So with that, uh, that that concludes the show. You can follow the show social media at Filmstrip Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. There you will find announcements about upcoming shows and a link to our letterbox page, which contains our entire list of reviews. Go to filmstrippodcast.com to link to our anchor.fm distribution site where you can find your podcast platform of choice, Apple, Spotify, Google, etc. And please share the show if you can. Leave us a positive review as it helps other people find the podcast. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.